Welcome to The Doctor Is Out, a podcast hosted by Dr. Sharif Akili, resident physician at Stanford Hospital and investor at Polaris Partners. Join Sharif in exploring the extraclinical practice of medicine as he interviews healthcare leaders who have gone from bedside to build companies, run health systems, spearhead public policy, and pursue many other paths where they lend their unique bedside perspectives. Our guest today is Yale professor and scientific founder of Simca Therapeutics and Saranova Bio, Dr. Aaron Ring. I'm excited to welcome the final guest of our season. Since he graduated with an MD-PhD from Stanford six years ago, he's already started his own lab at Yale. He has founded two venture-backed companies, Simca Therapeutics and Saranova Bio, and I hear others are in the woodworks as well. And he is an assistant professor of immunobiology. Dr. Aaron Ring, I'm so thankful to have you on the podcast today. Appreciate you taking the time. Well, thanks so much for having me. Aaron, your background is one I've seen so many people aspire to do. So straight out of med school, you started a successful lab. You've been commercializing your work. You built biotech companies, all in really a time it could take somebody to finish residency. For our listeners, can you share a little bit about how you got to where you are and how you went about doing that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah. So, you know, for me, um, you know, in terms of like the positions I've been, the companies I've started, that's all just a means to the end. Um, you know, I got to where I was because of a passion for uh, what we wanted to accomplish, which was to, you know, bring new shots on goal, new potential therapies uh, to patients. Um, and so that that was something that I really caught the bug for as an MD PhD student at Stanford. And it's an, it's addictive when you make something that um, you're excited about, and it's it's something we've been chasing um, ever since then, and, and something we've been trying to do in my own lab, both in terms of designing new molecules that we can advance in the clinic, and also trying to gain new insights into what we ought to be targeting. Yeah. So so you were a med student or MD PhD student at Stanford. Did you see yourself? spinning out companies after you are done. They're, they're like these paths that are within the zeitgeist for MD-PhD students. Do you feel like you went off that path at all? hundred percent. Let me just say, nothing went according to plan. All right, I, I went to medical school, um, you know, fulfilling a lifelong dream ever since I was a kid that I wanted to be a physician. My dad long inspired me. He's, he's an interventional cardiologist um, and a dang good one, I should say. Um, even does TAVR. He's been one of the early, uh, you know, um, uh, transaortic valve replacement operators. You know, it's really best of the best interventional cardiologist. And ever since I was a young kid, I, I really wanted to be a doctor. In fact, my AOL screen name when I was a kid, um, and for the younger listeners, you know, AOL, America Online is how we would <laughs> dial up to the internet back in the day, was A Ring MD the number two B ever since I was like, you know, like six, eight years old. So wow. actually being a doctor was, You're gonna was get a always lot of my, my dream. Now. Everyone's going to email you. <laughs> MD2B. Yeah. Um, and then I, I, you know, when I went to undergraduate, I started getting interested in research. I really, um, you know, I did a deep dive in Rick Lifton's lab studying the genetics of hypertension. And that's really where I decided, yeah, I know I want research to be a major part of my career, but I, I had not committed that, um, that I have a pure research focus. Um, 
And so, you know, even you know, entering medical school, I, I wanted to be a physician scientist in the classical mold, seeing patients, doing translational research. And the idea of starting a company uh, was not at all on my radar. <clears throat> and um, the, the way things sh shook out was that when, when I was in my PhD years, um, I, I gained a really intense interest in, um, in immunopharmacology and in, in developing drugs that we could use to interrogate the immune system. Um, and the goal was, was, was biology. It was to really try to understand at a really fine level how the immune system was being regulated in the context, for example, of, of you know, tumor immunology. Um, but one of the, the, the fun things about pharmacology is um, you, you're making a drug. And so if you see something exciting biologically um, in, in a preclinical model, um, there's, there's an obvious next step, which is let's, let's move this into people. Right. And um, going from, you know, that initial realization that yeah, I wanted to advance our discoveries beyond the lab. Uh, so, for example, when I was at Stanford, we generated the very first um, CD122 biased IL-2. That was an interleukin-2 superkine, um, you know, in, in 2012. Um, and it just seemed, wow, this is so exciting. But then realizing, you know, what does it take to get into people? Um, I realized I didn't have the first idea of what was involved. And unfortunately, that drug sat on the shelf and is only now this year entering clinical trials, you know, basically 10 years after we described it. Um, and then I, I started working with Irv Weissman's lab and we developed um, some novel agents targeting CD47. I worked with another MD-PhD colleague of mine, Kip Weisskopf, uh, who's now a Whitehead fellow, um, a rock star, total rock star. And we, we teamed up and we made what is now a Vorpicept at ALX Oncology, and the data we were getting in mice was just incredible. And it just seemed, look, we have a we have a drug, it's ready to go, it looks great, let's get it into trials. And just learning from, from Irv Weissman and his disease team who, who were doing essentially that process for magrolimab, at the time they called it, you know, 5F9G4, just realized, wow, this, this takes incredible amounts of resources. The studies involved to go from even having a lead compound to starting a trial is astonishing. Like it's, and, it, and it's, it's totally thankless research, like figuring out how to manufacture the drug under GMP, doing the advanced preclinical studies to establish safety, pharmacokinetics, the analytical assays you need for a trial, the hundreds of page long investigational new drug application. You start to realize, oh my God, <laughs> I need a lot of help. I need a lot of resources, um, takes money. And, and, uh, and the, really the, the tried and true way of doing that is, is through a company. If you think about it, there's no funding mechanism really for most investigators to even cover a single study. Like, can you imagine doing a single non-human primate study, not even GLP talks, I'm talking just like, you know, pilot, you know, non-human primate study. That's like a whole NIH R01 budget for a year for one study, hundreds of thousands of dollars. This, this can't be done in academia, um, at least not with the, the speed that patients deserve. And so that's where they really started to get exposed to, um, to the entrepreneurial side and realizing, aha, the company's a means to an end. A company's the way to bring the necessary resources to move an idea forward. But there's a catch. You have to make it worth the investor's while. And you have to put yourself in their shoes and understand, okay, what do I need to take this risky bet? to advance a drug into the clinic. And that that's really where things got started for me in, in terms of the entrepreneurial angle. So I wanted to 
dig deeper there because uh, I, that's incredible being around Irv, that environment at Stanford there. I feel like there's a, um, I mean, a Stanford ecosystem, special, especially there's a translational commercialization, entrepreneurial atmosphere there, if you will. And especially around those um, incredible people. What I'm curious is how do you take that science that you were working on and bridge the gap and sell it to investors or get that funding to run those studies and get the therapy that you've been working on off the shelf and into patients? Because I think there are a lot of people who are working on exciting science and they don't make that gap. It's it's sort of like a chasm, if you will, in order to create a, a platform around themselves and build a lab around themselves and keep spinning out companies. Do you feel like there are certain lessons there that you discovered? Is it about having really high quality science? Is it about being able to tell a story? Is it about being around people who give you credibility around you? Curious how you encountered that gap. Yeah, I think you just you just listed, you know, the many components needed to achieve liftoff, right? Um, first and foremost, it's got to be good science. Okay, in my opinion, can you start a company with with mediocre science? Of course, you know, and if you're if if you're very charismatic and the investors can can see, you know, uh, a path to liquidity, uh, you know, I I I, I will I won't. <laughs> I will say, you know, there, there, there certainly are examples of, I hate to say it, but just glorified pump and dump schemes built to buy in biotechs. Don't get me wrong. Sure. If you want to make money and, you know, play the part of, of starting a company, it can't be done. But life is too short for that. Okay. And I just think if you're going to spend, because it's everything's harder than it seems. Like if you're, if you're going to invest the time, the energy, your life force, your credibility into something, you better be excited about the science. Most things fail. So if you're going to, you know, if you're going to put yourself out there and go in the arena, then believe what you're fighting for. So A, I think me personally, it has to start with the most compelling science that you can possibly imagine. Okay. The, the goal should not be to start a company. The goal should be to, to pursue something that you view is, is, is worthy. So for me, that's where the, that's what the lab's science, all about. Should it be science that is uh, translationable, like there, there's science out there that can be compelling that may not necessarily turn into a drug well or be able to be commercialized well, or might be in an area that, I mean, as an investor, we know there are certain areas that it may be a little bit easier to have a compelling business model than others. I was wondering if you should think about that or you'd advise uh, students to think about that when they're like picking their lab as a PhD student or an MD PhD student. Yeah. Look, um, the, you know, we're in a golden era of, um, of, of biotech and, um, you know, even with the, the, the public markets coming down, there's still just incredible amounts, unprecedented amounts of capital to fund ambitious, exciting ideas at an earlier stage than ever before. Um, and there's no one size fits all for what makes a compelling company. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a yeoman pharmacologist. So for me, I like to start companies generally around drugs or straightforward ways to to learn about which drugs I'd be making. So target discovery. That that's kind of where I come from because I I want to make it all about therapeutic uh, development. Um, but there's all sorts of examples of 
um, of highly successful, super innovative companies that have spun out of very basic discoveries. Um, and so really, you know, when thinking about a company, the way I think about it is, you know, what, what is, um, you know, how, how do you move beyond the lab? Is there a compelling application to a given discovery? I mean, even very basic, right? Um, you think about like, um, I mean, maybe CRISPR uh, is, is somewhat obvious that, yeah, you can edit a genome. Um, it, it could be therapeutically useful. Um, but yeah, I think about all the advances in like molecular biology now um, that are, you know, single cell transcriptional technologies that are now the basis of numerous companies um, in trying to identify new targets um, with unprecedented evolution, uh, uh, with unprecedented resolution or all of like the AI ML companies out there. I mean, it's, you know, it, it doesn't have to be, you know, oh, I have a drug, I'm ready to go. It can be, you know, I have a really powerful basic tool and, and this is how it could be applied. So, yeah, I mean, for, like I said, just to come back to, you know, what, what I think the core of a company is that I think is worth your time. That's worth you committing precious years of your life to uh, is the most exciting science you can imagine. So that, that's step one. Uh, step two is, um, and you, you mentioned yourself, is, is being able to tell a good story. <laughs> There's too many examples of, and, and people overlook this in science. And in fact, in academia, I think we tend to deride people who we consider to be, you know, like good storytellers. Ah, you know, his science is okay, but he tells a really good story. Um, I see it the other way. I say, wow, that, that, that person is so charismatic and they can communicate what's exciting about their science in a way that gets others excited as well. You have to, you know, and, and I think even if it's not your natural tendency, it certainly wasn't mine about being a storyteller. Uh, you know, it, it's a skill that is worth developing um, because at the end of the day, you're going to be going to an investor and you're going to be convincing them to give you millions of dollars about something that's more likely than not to fail. And you have to convince them that it's a worthy investment. Um, so, so telling a great story is, is also important. And then, yeah, building a team is essential uh, and it's never been harder. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, there is a scarcity of talent, not because there aren't so many talented people out there, but because there's so many companies and so much capital, We're all competing for a talent pool um, that has perhaps grown linearly, whereas the number of companies have, have grown more than linearly. Um, and, you know, that, that ends up being a bottleneck for, for many companies. And we're, we're sort of seeing the evolution of this founder-led um, model in, in new company formation where investors are more willing to take bets on, um, you know, uh, entrepreneurs and scientists themselves as the early managers of companies. And I think there's now many examples of success in that model. Jeff, it's beautifully said. I was curious, as you were saying that, did you ever consider just entering industry, starting a company yourself, as opposed to starting a lab? I'd be curious how you went about thinking about starting a lab at Yale, not doing, choosing not to do a residency. I don't know if that was a difficult decision for you or if you ever contemplated that. And if you had any other paths you were choosing between and deciding to ultimately create the setup that you have now. Oh, it was an excruciating decision to forego residency. I felt like I gave up a part of my identity. I love taking care of patients as a medical student. It was a privilege. And, and, and one thing I did is... Um, I did finish. Uh, I had, I had, I was in an interesting situation where I ended up applying for, um, you know, faculty positions while I was finishing 
my PhD at the beginning of my clerkships. Um, but I was committed to finishing uh, medical school. And, and I'm so glad that I did. Um, you know, my, my time in the wards, even, even just as a fly on the wall or, you know, <laughs> being the medical student, you know, getting the faxes, you know, from other hospitals or, you know, just the, the most menial things. It just was very meaningful to me um, to be involved in you know, uh, I never thought I would love surgery. And yet being on that rotation was like mind blowing. And I got to interact with people like, you know, Jeff Norton, who's, you know, just an incredible, um, you know, uh, um, oncology, you know, a surgical oncologist, um, you know, being involved in these heroic procedures, um, it g- gave me a new perspective. Um, and, and so, yeah, no, I, I will say not going to residency, not, you know, for example, becoming an oncologist, which I, I would have wanted to do was, was a very difficult decision. Uh, but for me, it, it really came down to, um, I was just so excited about what was happening in my own research about the direction of the field. This was circa, you know, 2013, early 2014, when um, you know, PD-1 was blowing up, right? It, you know, it was on the cusp of being approved. Um, and it just seemed like the sky was the limit. You know, the very first um, large studies of com- combining CTLA-4 and NIPD-1 were coming out. It seemed like um, we were going to be eradicating most tumors uh, in just a short number of years. And I wanted to be a part of that. And um, and so, you know, because I had this opportunity to start my lab, because um, I had this research momentum, I felt like I, I didn't know if that opportunity was going to exist if I did residency. Um, and if it did exist, where the field would be. The field would have moved on. <laughs> Science doesn't wait for any person, right? Um, so that's that's really what drove me to my decision not not to go to residency. Um, and, um, you know, whether, whether or not I would have gone to a company, that really wasn't um, something I had been seriously considering because, um, as I was saying, I, I feel that um, the, the science has got to come first. And academia is where you can take the riskiest bets. You can, you can start projects that no company or investor would ever allow you to start because it's just, there's no basis for it. Right? I18 was a great example of that. And that thing had, I18 had bombed um, in its clinical trials where GSK had taken it, you know, through a phase two study and, you know, one out of 63 treatment naive melanoma patients responded. And that, that's, that's, that's simply, you know, <laughs> there's no hope there, right? Um, but we, we had a crazy idea that, you know, maybe it would have worked great but for this pesky interleukin-18 binding protein. And, you know, what if we could remove that from the equation? Um, and, and so we, we took that risky bet, right? Um, and, and then that was the basis of Simca later on. Um, the other big bet was saying, hey, we're really interested in trying to understand what are new, you know, uh, where, where's the new biology that we should be thinking about across a wide spectrum of diseases? Where, what's a new um, toehold into therapeutic insights. And so we got really interested in, in patient autoantibodies, thinking about can autoantibodies not just cause disease, but can they prevent it? And so we made a big bet in, in developing this autoantibody profiling technology and systems immunology, this REAP technology um, that ended up being like, again, there was not really a strong basis. Um, it wasn't a sure thing at all, but we were just curious and excited enough when we had, um, you know, <laughs> I had a naive student <laughs> And, um, and, you know, some unrestricted funds where we, where we could, you know, take a lot of risk and, 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 um, you know, just, it's been a thrill to see those programs develop and, you know, form the basis of, um, of a company that's worthy of, of, of scaling the technology. 
Um, so yeah, for me that, you know, academia is, is a birthplace where you can, you can pursue crazy ideas and, and generate sufficient conviction, sufficient proof of concept to justify, um, you know, a, a larger scale in, in funding, in people and talent, you know, you know, in, in the context of a company. Do you have a role model um, in academia that you sort of modeled yourself af- after? Uh, I think about, for example, Bob Langer, who is such an incredible academic who has literally a family tree of disciples who have gone on to also build labs that have built companies in really impactful ways. Are there certain guiding principles that you've tried to follow in setting up your lab, building the community of students around you and sort of create your own little niche at Yale? Now, Bob Langer is a, a huge inspiration. Um, and there, there is a, a, you know, a great cadre of, of, of scientists who have had, you know, similar, um, you know, types of, 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 of careers where they really have been able to move beyond discovery and, and embrace this idea that your, your job doesn't end when the paper's published and you move on to the next thing that, you know, you have to champion the sci- the science that you have conviction about. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, Bob Langer has been an inspiration, but like Tim Springer, for example, um, my own mentors, Irv Weissman and, and Chris Garcia, they've had between them amazing uh, companies where they've really pushed the envelope on, on innovative science. Um, th- there's just so many examples like that, um, you know, of, of um, scientists, entrepreneurs, even in, you know, I, I would say my own cohort of, um, of scientists like Sar Gill, for example, uh, a huge inspiration to me. And he's a real deal physician scientist, right? At, at UPenn, developing crazy car therapies, car macrophages, um, you know, targeting antigens no one would ever try, like CD33 and AML, and then transplanting the patients with CD33 knockout. Boom. I mean, like, come on, that's science fiction. It's just absolutely mind blowing stuff. So, like, I, I take a lot of inspiration from. Um, you know, uh, other scientists and physician scientists who um, are are just grabbing the bull by the horns and pushing um, their science to the next level. I think another great example is Amy Payne, right? You know, it, at um, you know, developing these antigen cars to treat autoimmune disease, like just science fiction um, that they're making reality off these audacious ideas. That that's what gets my uh, my blood pumping, and so. Um, you know, we, we're always looking for, for, for people to be inspired by. Do you have a North Star that you try to, um, I'm curious, just sort of how you see yourself navigating through the biotech ecosystem and where it's been going from a macro standpoint and sort of where you sit within that and how you are steering your ship with your team and your research and your academic work. You know, we really see... Um, the biotech ecosystem, company formation as a means to end, right? Um, the goal is to cure the patient. The goal is, is, is to move beyond discovery. Um, you know, it's, it, yes, you have to celebrate your wins, but, you know, we're, we're not popping the champagne bottles just because we founded a company, because we raised a round, we got some great valuation. Um, no, I mean, like, our eye is on the prize, you know, which is to really pressure test the discoveries that we make in the lab, um, you know, on the big stage. 
and, and, and to really champion and push that science as far as it can go. And, you know, that may mean when we pressure test it, that we were wrong, but that's fine. Cause at least we're learning something new and, you know, we, we can build on it. Um, this, this gets to something I was saying to you earlier before we started the interview, but um, I'm always encouraging, you know, people in my lab and other people I my mentor to just like view your, your, your time in your career. And this is true as a limited resource, life is too short to work on anything that you don't have absolute conviction and excitement about. Okay. Life is too short for me to incrementally me too, or incrementally me better. Um, you know, pursue the biology you think is going to move the needle. Um, and if you're right, it will have a transformational impact on patients. And if you're wrong, then if you're wrong, then, then the field learned, you know, so that, that's really our, 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 our guiding star is that. As a scientific founder, as a scientist, is there a mistake that you feel like investors make most often when they assess companies and think about the space? Well, I, I feel like, you know, so first of all, let me just caveat this by saying I'm not an investor. I've never been one. And I, I don't, you know, want to presume that, that I know something that they don't. And I think if you talk to them, they, they may agree with, with some of what I'll say. Um, so I just want to just caveat to say that, yeah, you know, of course, I, you know, this is, this is backseat driving. Um, but when I look through my own experience in, in pitching, I notice that investors take a lot of heuristics when they evaluate an opportunity. Um, is it a platform or single agent company? Um, you know, who are the founders and the team involved? And, um, and oftentimes, um, and, and of course, like what do the economics look like? And oftentimes it seems to me that, that those, um, you know, criteria take an outsized role relative to the most important question, which is how compelling is the science and how big can the impact be? Okay. Imagine if um, you could go back in time and start a single asset company that was what is now Pembrolizumab or Nivolumab, NIPD1, okay? Be the greatest company of all time. The, the, the product is a pipeline, right? And I mean, you don't have to dream too much. I mean, this is kind of Metarex, right? They had a, they had a platform to make antibodies. They made CTLA4 and PD1 and, and they were acquired at, at a bargain. Um, but you know, I, I, I feel like the, the value is in the drugs, not, not the means to make them. And these heuristics that are, that are being applied by investors, I think, lead them to overlook um, otherwise really great investments. Um, and there has been an obsession, um, and I know the pendulum swings back and forth, but an obsession on this idea that the best companies have to have platforms. And, you know, that, that's a catch-all phrase. Um, some people mean, oh, we have a means to discover new drugs. You know, we have a, a mechanism to do that. Um, for example, a company that has a unique antibody discovery um, approach. Okay. Um, another example of a platform would be, oh, we have a unique type of molecule we make. For example, um, Protax. Our Venus's platform is that they, they can make a really novel, exciting type of medicine that's really tapping into new therapeutic space. Um, you know, and, you know, but but in general, um, most of the the so-called platform companies fall in the first bin. And in my estimation, I will, I'll just come out and say it. I feel that most of those companies end up being glorified biosimilars makers because the very first question they have to address is, okay, we we can make drugs. What should we make a drug against? And they don't take 
they don't want to take risk on target biology, right? right? The platform's risky. And so investors say, well, we don't want to take target risk. But what they, I think, fail to accurately calculate is um, just because you're not taking target risk doesn't mean you're not taking incredible commercial risk. How, how much, how many winners can there actually be in a given space? And um, if, even if you think you're making a better drug than something ahead of you, you know, a, a so-called, you know, me better, you know, a lot of investors or companies will even say, ah, best in class. 99% of the, the time when somebody says something is best in class, they're completely wrong. Okay. And so what this has caused is a massive pileup of, of capital, of talent, of energy just wasted into a handful or a small number of oversubscribed pathways. And this is this is wasting patients' times because honestly, the, the incremental benefit of, of trying, you know, a glorified biosimilar, that's not going to move the needle for a patient. And so I really think that there needs to be more investment in fundamentally new biology, really emphasizing first-in-class agents that, that tap into unique therapeutic space. Um, that's why I, I am really inspired by like my colleague, Craig Cruz and his company, Arvinus. Um, they spawn this whole new field of, of Protax. And yeah, they're, they're targeting, um, you know, pre you know old old targets but in a completely new way where it really could move the needle um and i'm excited about that that's so beautifully said aaron i i feel like it's very provocative and important um for the community to noodle on because you know polaris we invest in platforms um and we see that as an important way to de-risk our targets or de-risk our uh candidates Sometimes, though, I guess there are platforms and then there are platforms, right? So if indeed you are discovering fundamental new biology, one would hope that that new biology unlocks a platform of new therapies that are harnessing that, you know, whatever that intellectual property is around that biology and that disease pathophysiology that you have now uncovered inside around and you're drugging. But I guess what you're saying is, be mindful of the platforms that are utilizing maybe some insight in disease biology without necessarily going after your target and ending up with a biosimilar. Is that fair to say? Well, this has been the big sort of existential crisis in my career for me, which I spent the last you know 15 years um, honing my craft in making drugs, making protein drugs. And we put multiple into the clinic now. I'm proud of what we can do but at the end of the day, our abilities to engineer new therapeutics is not what's limiting for patients um, in, in the development of transformational new therapeutics. It's actually knowing what to drug and when to drug it, okay? And so for me, the most exciting platforms are um, either A, um, approaches that, that fundamentally allows to access new therapeutic space, either old targets hit in a fundamentally different way. So a, you know, a protac or molecular group, or, you know, the immuno immunology space, I think bispecifics are super fascinating. Um, and not, not just the, the T cell engagers, but you know, that the recent data on the CD16 engagers at ACR, I mean, that blew my mind. I couldn't believe how well that was working. Um, you know, just from the outset, I'm like, well, why would targeting CD16 be any better than an antibody? And yet, you know, you test the idea and sure enough, it, it's working great. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one thing that gets me excited is, you know, um, fundamentally different way of, of, of targeting an old target or 
what I'm most interested in is entirely new targets. And, and that's, you know, um, sort of the, the new direction that, we, that I'm, we're pursuing at Serenova, which is um, trying to get a toehold into new insights, um, you know, into, into what, what we should be drugging. And, and the concept could you of that- share, con- Could you share a yeah. little bit more for our audience yeah. about Serenova? Yeah, yeah, I'd be delighted to. So, you know, the, the basis of Serenova is, um, is this idea, you know, um, like I said, we, we've long had this passion for using drugs to study the immune system, but lately we get interested in the exact opposite question. Can we study the natural drugs the immune system makes and how that influences health and disease outcomes? Namely, you know, how do patient autoantibodies impact diseases? Typically, when we think of autoantibodies, you think about those that drive autoimmune disease, you know, um, antibodies that are targeting tissues and causing tissue damage. Um, But it it turns out there's a pretty extensive literature across a wide range of diseases where um, patients are found to have autoantibodies that appear to be protective, that are preventing or ameliorating the severity of disease. So, for example, it's been known for decades that patients who make antibodies against their, their tumors live longer than those that don't. There are breast cancer patients who make anti-HER2 antibodies. They're literally making their own trastuzumab um, and they live longer, no surprise. In autoimmune disease, patients who make anti-cytokine antibodies have less severe illness than those that don't. Even in neurodegenerative diseases, uh, protective antibodies have been discovered. So think what you might about aducanumab, that's the anti-amyloid antibody for Alzheimer's disease, that was cloned out of a patient. Um, and there are other examples of like anti-tau, anti-synuclein, anti-prion antibodies that appear to be protective. And so the idea is, well, you know, maybe we can think about autoantibodies like genetic alleles um, that, that people are walking around with functional autoantibodies that are impacting their health, um, you know, very akin to their genetics. And it's, it's explaining one axis of intra-individual variation. And by understanding these antibodies that have an outsized biological impact, we, we can learn about new drug targets. Um, and, and so that, that's a question we got interested in, in my lab. And, and the problem is, um, how do you detect the key antibodies? And that's what we look to solve for with this REAP technology that we developed. And in a nutshell, it's like a molecular search engine that allows you to scan thousands, you know, autoantibodies that react against thousands of different extracellular proteins in a very high throughput fashion with a small volume sample. And with that information, we can now develop a serological atlas across many different disease types and in thousands to tens of thousands of different patients and really try to pinpoint those responses that are protective. Then you have a target. Once you find those protective antibody responses, you can develop drugs that capture that biology therapeutically. Um, and so that's something we're really excited about is, is really the natural um, understanding the natural biologic products of the immune system, the, these autoantibodies. That's such an incredibly fascinating space. There, there are a number of companies that have looked at antibody profiles of disease responders and built platforms around that, <laughs> talking about platforms. When did you feel like you were ready to go to investors with this technology and take it out of the lab? And how did that process go for you? Well, it was, it was, it was tougher for me to appreciate that because, you know, my background is in drug development. So with my other company, Simca Therapeutics, I knew when it was time to move, we had just seen this incredible uh, preclinical proof of concept, the very first F, you know, tumor efficacy studies in the mice 
the IL-18 drug was, I mean, it would look better than anything I'd ever seen before. So I immediately popped open my Rolodex and said, guys, we have, you know, have some pretty exciting. Uh, and I started pitching immediately. Um, you know, with Serenova, it was, it was less of a, a, a clear transition point because, um, you know, we were building this technology and, and we got our initial study saying, hey, this is working. And then we started to refine it, improve it, expand it. Um, and it was a bit more of a gradual process. In fact, I, I had, you know, multiple times that I, I started talking to investors early on as we were developing, um, you know, data about the platform. And that was really useful, actually. And, and I would encourage a lot of academics to, um, to you know, develop these relationships with investors and, and, and really view it as a two-way street. They're looking for opportunities, but they can also tell you, hey, this is what I would need to get excited about this, or have you thought about this? This would this this would make it a really attractive platform. Um, so you know, over the course of about a year, year and a half, you know, just with a group, a small group of investors I knew well, I was able to get that feedback, and then eventually, once the pieces came together, you know, it was like punctuated equilibrium. Like all of a sudden, you know, we had a pitch that was really resonating with people we were we were telling it to, and then I realized, okay, yeah, it's it, it's time to start the company at that point. Uh, so it was a bit more of a gradual process. I don't know if that's typical because, again, I'm not really a platform guy, um, but but you know that that's how it worked for me. No, I actually, I, I mean, I'm biased. I, I feel like we do that very often with our scientific founders. We just keep in touch. There's an exciting science, work of science that um, they've worked on or paper that they've published, and you'll get a bunch of calls, and you're sort of, I've seen it organically sort of form over time. Um, also, I love talking to investors, by the way, because, I mean, you know, VCs, I mean, these are like some of the smartest people out there. And I, they've no, seen a lot. We're, yeah. we're, we are monkeys, Aaron. We, no, we no, come on. We're just, you know, we like to we like to shop around, looking around different things in the aisle, and we like to buy and sell things and... Uh, well, the, the point is, you, you, you very simple you, you, people at the end of the they day. See, they see, you, you see a lot, you see what's exciting, and sure. you see what works and what doesn't. Um, and that's a perspective that an individual scientist might not have. And so, um, you know, I think the best investors out there, um, you know, Polaris, but I've engaged with other early stage groups who, by the way, never invested in any of my companies. Um, you know, people mm -hmm. like Michael Gladstone and Atlas, you know, just a tremendous resource, um, you know, as, you know, as a, as a thought partner early on. Uh, incredibly generous with their time, um, you know, to give feedback and, and noodle on early ideas. Um, and, you know, I, I, again, that's something that I'm, I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to develop these relationships and, um, and, you know, really, you know, learn from, from the investors and help them, you know, shape the early research, you know, and, and now that, you know, I have, have a broader network, you know, really start to, you know, get to take advantage of, um, you know, a broader set of investors and as well as people I've worked at with, with different companies, uh, et cetera. And, um, and, and not seeing an artificial division between academia and industry or startups, et cetera, but, but really looking for the, the, the synergisms and, and the interfaces, um, you know, where, where discoveries can bloom. I, pr I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I, um, I definitely agree. And I hope that the ecosystem it feels that way for our scientific founders and scientific community. Um, curious also, what was it like building a team around Saranova? 
how is that process? How'd you navigate that? Well, you know, b- building a team is the hardest part right now of, um, I would say the absolute hardest part of, um, of starting companies. I mean, we're in this situation where um, there's never been more capital. There's never been more companies. Even with the, the public markets coming down, um, there, there are just so many incredible opportunities that, um, that uh, the fights for talent have been, have been incredible. And so, um, you know, at, at Simca, for example, we were able to delay that process because, you know, we already had a lead competent hand and, you know, with, with a few um, you know, really, really phenomenal consultants, some of whom actually came into the company in our leadership. Um, we were able to make a lot of progress quickly by just putting the blinders on and focusing on what needed to get done to move a drug through advanced preclinical development. Um, at, at Saranova, it's a different story. I mean, we, we're a platform company. We need to actually have boots on the ground, set up a lab. Um, and um, I'm just really grateful, you know, to have teamed up with a you know phenomenal invest you know, investor, you know, Foresight Capital, um, and you know they rolled up their sleeves and help us. Um, you know, recruit um, really phenomenal talent. I, I think, you know, our, our, our current scientific team um, is, is just phenomenal. But, you know, we've, we've delayed on the executive management team. And I think this is a growing trend that actually the idea is, especially because, you know, the executive talent is in the highest demand, that you kind of need to build the company to a point where the science is leading and is exciting for that top tier talent. Um, and, and so that's what we, we were trying to do at, at Saranova. Yeah. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. The last question that we always end with that I wanted to ask, um, and you should feel free to answer it however you wish is just simply, is there something interesting or compelling or cool that you encountered recently? It could be literally anything, Aaron, it could be a book, a podcast, a TV show, um, a song, anything. Well, I mean, this is, this is probably a generic answer, but, you know, um, I'm, I'm a dad and um, I have a two-year-old daughter and she's just undergone an incredible language explosion. And I feel like every day I'm discovering a new aspect of, of her personality, a, a new you know, facet to her curiosity and her intellect. And, um, you know, I maybe it's because, you know, I, I have blinders on, but, but that's been a real source of, of joy in my life is, is, is being a dad. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to say that, you know, we're, we're growing our family and, and, uh, and my wife and I are expecting another baby girl, um, in, in June. So we'll, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see if having two is, is additive or exponential in the, in the craziness, but, uh, but I'm, I'm super excited about I love it. love that. It's clear you have your priorities really aligned. It's, uh, speaks volumes toward the success you've had as well so well i might just, i might just i'll just say one thing though because i know we yeah. have a lot of you know uh, docs you know in training yeah. listening i just want to say like if i could go back i'd say one thing to myself which is there's, n- there's never a good time to have kids having kids is awesome so like Aww. i mean you, you can't let you, don't let this crazy training path of you know md md phd residency uh, defer you from really what's important. And um, so, yeah, I know be, being a dad has been awesome. Well said, sir. Well said. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was, it was a pleasure to be here. That does it for this episode of The Doctors Out. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support us, 
please leave a review on Apple Podcast or whichever podcast platform you use. And if there's something you found you really liked, or didn't like, or would like to make a suggestion, feel free to reach out by email at info at tdio.org. Thank you.